Thanks for joining us as we explore the book of James, wisdom for the everyday stuff of life. Doxa Church is a family of servant missionaries who make disciples of Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. For more information, visit doxa-church.com. Jesus, <clears throat> we are thankful that uh, we can have confidence that even though we, as finite human beings, cannot know everything and answer every question, uh, that that's because of our limitations, not yours. Lord, we believe you are the eternal and omnipotent, all-knowing God, and that we stand in your presence as your created beings, eager to know you better, to love you more. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would send your spirit to guide, to direct, to open our hearts, uh, to cut us to the heart with the uh, saving and healing power of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that my words would be your words, that you would speak through me this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. James, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Uh, just five verses this morning, which I love uh, to do a, a kind of a small section. And I love passages like this um, that take a, a kind of a normal everyday thing. It's not the big, we're not talking about murder, or adultery, or anything crazy. We're talking about something very simple, something that all of you have done this week. Okay, so there's nobody in this room that you go, ah, you know, I have a friend who this applies to. No, uh, it may also apply to them, but it does apply to you. I promise each of you have done some version of this this week. What I love about passages like this is that it takes a normal everyday experience and peels back the layers so that we can see kind of what actually is happening underneath it all. And, and what is happening underneath is far more nefarious than the kind of presenting issue it's and so we see this thing go, ah, that's not that big a deal. But then James kind of unpacks and we go, oh, okay, that, that's a big deal, okay? So I love passages like this. I hate this particular one because the thing it talks about is something I do a lot and actually enjoy doing a lot. And so it's hard when the preacher has to preach against something that he doesn't want to not do. Okay, so I, I, I appreciate whatever sympathy uh, you can garner for me this morning. So um, this is literally something we talked about in my DNA uh, this week. Uh, my buddy Scott and Brad and I were talking about the future, where we were going to be, what we were going to be doing, what mattered, our frustrations about the future, and our inability to control it uh, in godlike fashion. And so uh, that it's mostly my issue. I uh, fantasize about the future. A lot. And so whether that's, uh, you know, places to live, homes to live in, cities, jobs, things, people, kids that I don't want any more of, but my wife does, uh, all of the things that uh, have to do with the future, I, th I think about, and I love to think about. And my, my guys in my DNA were, were pushing back on me ever so gently uh, about my need to control the future and what I value about the future. And so I love these kinds of passages in general. I hate this one specifically. Uh, so let's get into this terrible passage. Verse 13. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Stop. 
This is a, a very benign statement, right? In the, in the kind of panorama of sins that the Bible talks about, um, somebody saying, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit is pretty low on the hierarchy of sins, right? If someone did this in your presence, you would probably not flinch at it. You probably wouldn't call a special meeting of the missional community to deal with the sin in the hearts of the person who just said they were going to go somewhere tomorrow. So I, I read passages like this and I go, okay, come on, James. Is this, is this, are we nitpicking here? Is this that big a deal? Are you just, are you being a legalist, James? Especially, two things. One, especially in light of the fact that last week he was talking about murder, adultery, and fighting. And then he transitions to planning for tomorrow. So it seems like, uh, it seems a little strange. And it seems especially petty in light of the fact that the solve for this problem is in verse 15. He says, instead of saying what you just said, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So James's solve is adding an annoying Christian cliche on the front of your planning, and then it's all good, right? So this, I, I read this first line, and this is, I think, one of those sections you kind of gloss over is like, all right, let's, let's get to real life, because if, this, we're, if we're talking about this, I mean, I can't even deal with that, Okay. But what, what I want to show us this morning, I wanna, what I want us to see, what James wants us to see, that in fact what he is accusing us of doing is making a human attempt at omnipotence. Or, or that we are making a divine power grab when we do things like this, when we say things like this, when we orient our lives and, and traffic in the future this lightly. Okay, he gives us two reasons why this might be the case. Verse 14, he says, you say this, you go, we're gonna go here, go there, spend a year, trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So there's two reasons. One is a pragmatic reason. You have no idea what tomorrow will bring. You have no idea. So repeat after me, I don't know. I, I, there was zero conviction behind that. Some of you think you do know, okay? Repeat after me. I don't know. I don't know. I am a finite and limited being. I am a being. Good. You sound more and more like a cult every time you repeat after me. It's fantastic. If, 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 if we didn't believe this already, 2016 should prove this true. I do not know what the future holds. I would never have predicted any of the things about 2016. This is James's point. You, you say, we're gonna go here, we're gonna go there, we're gonna sell some stuff, we're gonna make a profit even, I mean, not just that I'm planning to go here to this town tomorrow, but when I go there, I'm going to do business and I'm going to win the business. I'm going to make a profit. I'm, I, I have control over the outcomes. And yet, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen next year. We have no idea. And here's the thing. That's good news. 
And in fact, we need to more and more and more lean into our limits and lack of knowledge. And part of James's whole argument is that us leaning into our limitations and owning our lack of knowledge and lack of omnipotence is actually the path to freedom. It's interesting to think about, and I, I wish I could spend more time talking about this this morning, but maybe something to think about the next time you go on your smartphone. I think that most technology is an attempt to subvert the limitations that God has put on us. Think about how much of our technology is us trying to be omnipresent. Think about how much of our technology is designed to make us all-knowing. That in some ways, our smartphone is the modern-day Tower of Babel, an attempt to exceed the limitations that God has put on us through technology that ultimately always fails us, but in some ways gives us the illusion that we actually are omnipresent or can be all-knowing. But it's an illusion that blinds us to reality. We'll talk more about this uh, and why it's a good thing in just a moment. Second reason, gave us a pragmatic reason, you just don't know. Second reason is theological reason. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What is your life? That's a great question for this time in our culture. What is your life? How do you assess what is your life? What the purpose of your life is? What the value of your life is? Just what, how would you even define who you are and why that matters? See, Christians have an answer to this question. When James says, what is your life? This is not a, a, a philosophical question that's supposed to not be answered or be, to be wrestled over for generations. This is something we have an answer to. Christians are rooted in a Christian anthropology, a Christian understanding of who we are. And it's two things. The answer to what is your life is Genesis 1 plus Genesis 3. You are made in the image of God and given complete and total value by not your performance, but by your creator. That you bear his image and likeness. That gives you all the value, all the identity, and all the purpose you will ever need. And honestly, if you read it, Genesis 1 also gives us the limits that we have. At least some of them. So Genesis 1 tells us who we are. Genesis 3 also tells us, gives us part of that answer to what is your life. We are Genesis 1 plus Genesis 3. We are some Imago Day and some fall. The fall has multiplied our limits. And at the same time, given us the desire and the passion to overcome those limits. Even the good ones. Right, so Genesis 1, God says, this is who you are. This is why I created you. This is what you ought to do. Genesis 3 multiplies all those limitations because now we have sin in our hearts. We have limitations brought on by selfishness. But it also put in us this desire to overcome God's God-given limitations. I mean, it's the same core sin as Adam and Eve, right? The desire to not just be human, but to be God. The desire to be in control 
to get glory, to know, I mean, just to be God himself. That was the temptation of the serpent in the garden. What, what God has given you, how, who God has made you to be isn't enough. You, there's more to be had. You could be more. You could have more. The same temptation that the serpent brought to Adam and Eve is the temptation that we deal with today. But what is essential to our Christian anthropology is that we are human, not divine. That we're created, not creator. That we are present, not omnipresent. That we are knowing, but not all-knowing. That we are responsible, but not sovereign. Much of our human frustration comes from our unwillingness to be human. And to be satisfied with being created, human, present, knowing, responsible beings that God created us to be. That part of the distortion of the fall was that we could no longer be content with who God made us to be and the relationship that he has given us with himself. But that now we look up, instead of looking up in worship, we look up in envy and jealousy. And a desire not to be submitted to God, but to be God. Not to be under his sovereign care, but to be sovereign. And this undergirds most of our human challenges, most of our frustrations. So James asks, what is your life? Not as a philosophical question, but as a reminder to answer that question for ourselves. Because you, you're a mist, which doesn't devalue you, but it does place you in a realistic timeline. To go, we're here, we're here for a moment, but we are just a very small part of a much larger arc of human history, of God's mission, of God's story. We are just one little slice, a very important slice, a very valuable slice because of God. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. There's a fragility to it, a humanity to it. And I think what's important for you if you're here and you're not a Christian to answer this question for yourself. What is your life? Where do you derive your value? Where do you derive your meaning? Where do you, how do you understand your purpose? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? What matters? And how do you know? Is it your production? Is it your performance? What is it? See, we Christians, we, we struggle to, to remember these things, but we at least have a foundation to go back to and go, no, this is who I am. I'm made in the image of God, given value and honor and dignity because God made me, and I'm deeply broken and flawed, which means I need more of God. I need his ongoing care in my life, but when it comes down to essential things, I know who I am. So James reminds us who we are so that we might not be so arrogant as to plan our lives without him. James reminds us of how the universe really works in verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So um, let's get this out in the open now. 
people who say churchy things are the worst. Okay, can we all just agree about that? That James's point here isn't say more churchy things, okay? Some of you are disappointed by that. I get it, um, but you're the worst, okay? So it is adding this clause onto the front of a plan the point? No. Not, not if it's just serving as a pious Christian cliche. It's absolutely not the point. Now, if it comes out of a re, like a reflection of a heart-level conviction about the sovereignty of God, then yeah. Like, if it's a true reflection of what you believe to be true, if the Lord wills, I will go and do this or that. Because it's James's point, we shouldn't plan. No. James's point is not we shouldn't plan. There is a ton of ton of passages in the scripture that tell us to plan and, and hold up the virtue of planning well and planning as a result of asking a bunch of people and a lot of counselors and all those kinds of things. The Bible's not anti-planning. The Bible is anti-atheistic planning. And so James corrects us back to go, listen, you say if the Lord wills, not just to kind of add a cliche on the front, but hopefully it's a result of a real heart level conviction that nothing in the future happens if the Lord doesn't will. Now, uh, is, that, is that heart level conviction always going to be the case in us? No. So should we only say it if it's a true heart level conviction about the sovereignty of God? No. You should say it anyway, because, or at least say it quietly in your heart so you're not annoying. But we should still say it because one, it's true. Whatever future you have planned will only take place if the Lord wills. It's just true. Two, it reminds you that you are not God. So just saying those words out loud is a verbal reminder and, and, and an audible reminder to yourself that you are not God. Number three, it bears witness to the fact that you are not God. It says it out loud for other people to hear that you know you are not God so they can all agree. Number four, practices like these are liturgies and we are profoundly shaped by liturgies. Liturgy is just the, the repetition of action over and over and over. It's how we build in new skills and abilities in our lives. It's the way God made us to be that the actual act of doing or saying something not only bears witness, it's not only true, it can not only be a reflection of our heart, but it also then shapes us. There's a cyclical movement to our actions. The more we do something, the easier it becomes to do it. If any of you have ever played sports or played an instrument or anything, you know this. Just doing it more and more and more, even if imperfectly, every time you, you take a shot or you play the violin, or I don't know why my head moves, but uh, it's because I've never played the violin for reals, um, that it makes you better at it. It works that way. And liturgies like this, saying these things, teach your heart the truthfulness of them. So even if you're not saying out of a full conviction of your heart, say it anyway, think it anyway, plan it into your life anyway, because it shapes you and you'll believe it more and believe it better as time goes on. Okay? So, James tells us, 
that saying, making plans about the future, kind of presumptuous planning, presumptuous planning without God is, is not okay because you don't know the future. Because who are you anyway? You are by nature limited and human. And he corrects us to say, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, which is a theological statement about the sovereignty of God. It's a worshiping statement about who's in charge and, and what matters. Now is the fun part, where James peels back the layers a little bit and shows us what's going on in our hearts. Verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Um, in the early fifth century, uh, an African priest named Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. It's probably one of the 10, maybe 20 most influential Christian books ever written. It's an incredible work. In it, he builds the case that the way that, the sin, that sin works in a person is by turning them inwards toward themselves. The phrase he coins in the Latin is incurvitus in si, or say, or I have no idea. Incurvitus in si. And this is not a spell that he was casting. This is a Latin phrase that means turned in towards oneself. That the work of sin is a sin, uh, is that sin works in you in that you are created before the face of God, designed to have an upward glance towards God in worship and submission, but that sin turns us slowly in towards ourselves so that the word navel-gazing becomes a very literal sense of the way in which our full orientation is. Uh, so Augustine wrote about this in the 5th century. A thousand years later, Martin Luther really built this, out, built this idea out in his lectures on Romans. He says this, Our nature... By the corruption of the first sin being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them as is plain in the works righteous and the hypocrites or rather even uses God himself in order to attain those gifts but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly curvedly and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. That he, Luther says that what sin does is it takes every good thing, including God himself, and turns it into a means by which I can be satisfied. And so we start with the worship of God. God becomes not a being transcendent that we would worship and give our lives to, but God becomes a functional being that we will worship insofar as he will give us what we want. That people, instead of uh, as they were designed to be loved and cared for and in, in, in harmonious relationship with, become tools that we use for our own self-satisfaction. What Chris and Stephanie are doing on the streets of Tacoma is a result of exactly that. People who have seen the people around them, image bearers who look at other image bearers and instead of loving them and enjoying them and having this vertical or this horizontal relationship with them have commoditized them and turned them into something that a person can use for their own satisfaction and fun. 
This is the work of sin on us. In fact, the, the New Yorker magazine recently uh, reflected this on their cover in a way that I think uh, tells the story. And the way in which that very technology that so often tempts us to act divinely is actually a means by which we might be continually curved in upon ourselves by sin. James says, this is at the root of this kind of statement about the future. So James and Augustine and Luther and the New Yorker all tell us that the sin beneath the sin is a self-absorbed arrogance that lies kind of just beneath the surface, all of, uh, beneath the surface of all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our desires, all of our impulses, that reflects kind of an unconscious atheism, that we wouldn't say I'm an atheist, but the way in which we disregard God reflects an unconscious atheism that allows and causes our will to be done. Because we take every good thing, every gift that God's given us, and we curve it in upon ourselves so that it might meet our needs. So that even a benign statement about, yeah, next year we're going to go to this town, I'm going to set up a shop, we're going to make some money, and we're going to come home, is all about you. And all about what you want and all about what you need and you are using the God-given talents that you have and the people that he has placed around you to serve your desire for profit. That, that curvature in is such, I think, a perfectly despicable and accurate picture of what sin does to us so that we begin more and more to lower our sights from God to people. And as soon as we see people outside of the presence of God, they do not become uh, a, 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 an image bearer of God, a creation of God, but a thing that I can use, a thing that might serve me, a thing that might do for me what I want them to do. And it becomes more and more and more about me until we find ourselves spiritually, mentally, and sometimes physically like this. Concerned only for our own needs and our own desires. In other words, we live out our days as if God doesn't exist in real life. So we can say things like, I'm going to go here and do this. And that's going to be the outcome. As if we know anything as if we can cause outcomes by our behavior, as if God plays no part in it at all. See, uh, the really insidious part of this too is that there's some in this room who go, man, I would never be so bold as to think about the future and make predictions about the future. I'm just, gosh, I, I'm way more humble than that. But see, the other side of this coin is the paralyzing anxiety and fear that has caused such a great percentage of our country to have to self-medicate in order to make it through the day. 
Do you see how the same root cause is behind both the boastful arrogance of I know what I can do and this is what's going to happen because I can control the universe and the same, same root cause is beneath the I don't know what's going to happen, I can't handle it, I don't know what's going on and I ha- I- I'm so anxious and so fearful that I have to self-medicate just to make it through the day because what's at root in, under, bo- underneath both of those things is God doesn't play a role, it's all on me. God has no part in my everyday life. I have to do it. And so we flinch one way and go, I can do it and I will control the outcomes or I could never do it and the weight of that responsibility is crushing me. Either way, it's arrogance. Either way, what lies underneath it is the assumption that you're at the center of the story. And that's so dangerous. In fact, James calls it evil, and in verse 17 calls it sin. It says, so whoever, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, why is it sin? It's important for us to understand what sin is. And, and I know this sounds very elementary and basic, but it's easy for us to make sin kind of two categories of good things to do and bad things to do. And the bad things to do are sin, and the good things to do make God happy and love us more. And I want us to understand sin in the way that James is understanding sin so that this all kind of ties together and makes sense. Sin is any thought, action, or desire that redirects our loves away from Christ. Sin is anything that makes us go from here to here to here. That's sin. That temptation, that thought, that desire, that action, that instead of reflecting the fact that God is God and we are not and that we exist to submit to him, to worship him, to then being able to look horizontally, which allows us to disconnect the creature from the creator and therefore treat the creature as if it were a a creature created for my own desires and therefore completing the circle into and upon myself. Anything that takes our eyes off Christ is sin. So at the heart of this issue is the fact that the person who plans this way doesn't need Jesus. When we are at the center, that means Jesus is not at the center, and when we have a sense of where we need to go and what we need to do and how how it's going to happen, we don't have any sensed need for Jesus. Chris made a great statement up here a moment ago where he said sometimes people's, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, uh, sometimes people's redemptive story requires incarceration. That's brilliant. You know, you know why that incarceration can be good news? Because it can bring you to your end in such a way that you realize I can no longer be at the center of the story. I have deep need of someone else. Something bigger, something better, something transcendent. Because one of the great temptations for us on the east side, us that we don't deal with addiction and and struggle and and, and darkness like they do, the, the temptation that we deal with up here on the east side is that we are so blinded by our ability to kill it We are so blinded by our success. We are so blinded by the fact that we don't feel real needs 
that we can go throughout our lives and go, yeah, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. Because every time in our past when we've said, I'm gonna go here and make a profit, guess what? We went there and we made a profit. Because I get business. And we do that enough times and all of a sudden this becomes default mode because we've never really needed God in order to make the profit that we want. And I think we've got to be able to open our eyes and see, man, if that is not the temptation of Satan, I don't know what is. To give you so much success that you do not feel the need for God? I mean, it's why Jesus said one time, it's harder for a rich man to uh, pass through the, easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than it for, I'm, I'm butchering this thing. <laughs> When a rich man passes through the camel, it's way harder than getting to heaven. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's the point. And, and, and all of a sudden, that makes all kinds of sense. Because if, if the temptation that is at the root of sin is anything that takes your eyes off Christ, then success is a great temptation. Status quo is a great temptation. Things normally working out the way you expect is a great temptation because it unconsciously takes your mind off Christ, it unconsciously takes away your dependence on Christ because you kinda know how things are gonna go. And so it tricks you into thinking you don't at every moment need to be dependent and submitted to Christ. And that's what James is talking about. The greatest commandments, love God, love neighbor, necessitate an outward orientation. This is what you were made for. That's the good news of this. That my prayer this morning is that the gospel would cut to our hearts deep. That we would be deeply convicted by this. That we would feel the weight of our sin and our, our kind of default atheism with which we live our lives. Not so that we will be burdened by this, not so that we'll walk away, you know, feeling so bad and ashamed and guilty for this, but because James's aim is God's aim, which is to reorient you back to himself. God gave us limits in Genesis 1 so that we would be forever dependent upon him because he knows that the best position to be in is to be fully dependent on him. So the good news of this isn't that we are, we are so limited and gosh, we just need God so much and he's gonna bring this kind of burdensome law on us that we have to add if the Lord wills to every sentence. That's not the point. The point is, God knows that the best position for you to be in is in close, dependent relationship with him. That is the fullest way to be human. It's the only way to find peace, joy, and satisfaction in this world. To be outwardly oriented and not curved in on oneself. These commandments are invitations into the only way to be human. That's the joy of it. There's a reason 
There's a reason why we are, as a nation, chemically dependent for our anxiety and depression, why we are ceaselessly arrogant about our futures. It's precisely because we are trying to be something we were never meant to be, something that only God can be, that is, God himself. Augustine, in the city of God, said this, in fact, they would have been better able to be like God's, talking about Adam and Eve, if they had in obedience adhered to the supreme and real ground of their being, if they had not in pride made themselves their own ground. For created gods are gods, not in their own true nature, but by participation in the true God. But aiming at more, a man is diminished when he elects to be self-sufficient and defects from the one who is really sufficient for him. This morning, come to Jesus and lay down the unbearable burden of divinity on his shoulders because his shoulders are strong enough for it and yours will only be crushed by it. Let's pray. Jesus, it's a stark reminder that things as benign as making plans about the future can have at their root such incredible arrogance that can have at its root a kind of atheism A default belief that even though you got things started and you will be there when times get tough, that for the most part, we don't need you. And we can just kind of do our thing, make our way. But Lord, we're crushed by that repeatedly. I pray, Lord, that we would see the solution is in you. Lord, I pray that we would stop trying to be what we cannot ever be. I pray that we would stop trying to be God and that we would live into our limits and allow you to be strong in our weakness. There's such joy and such peace and such satisfaction in just letting you be God. Give us a taste of that, Lord that we might want more and more and more. In Christ's name we pray, amen.